0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Welcome to Scorebox, here are your headlines. U.S. manufacturing activity falls to a decade low, shaking global stocks as the Dow wipes out all of its third quarter gains on the first day of Q4. My deal or no deal, Boris Johnson prepares to reveal his final Brexit offer to the European Union. But the prime minister rules out asking for a delay
2: if Brussels rejects the proposal. Demonstrations continue in Hong Kong after an 18-year-old protester is shot by police during some of the territory's worst violence in 17 weeks of anti-government protests. And Mark Zuckerberg blasts Elizabeth Warren's plan to break up big tech calling the Democratic presidential candidate's proposals an existential threat in a leaked audio recording. Well, the first day of trade in the month of October proved not one for the faint-hearted markets tumbled. As you can see here beside me, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500, and the Dow Jones all closing in negative territory. Now, this weakness came on the back of the ISM manufacturing print, which came through yesterday much worse than the market had expected. Below that key 50 level that the market had been expected, it came in at 47.8. That's the worst reading in a decade. And within the index, the details were just as bad. The export sub-index plummeted to 41, which was around 2009 crisis level. So driving concerns in the market among investors around a recession coming in the U.S. Uh, the Dow Transports index fell 2.3 percent, so underperforming the broader market. they are currently in contraction territory off 12 percent from its recent highs. In terms of sector performance, all S&P 500 sectors ended in negative territory. Industrials were the the worst performing sector, while the uh, consumer staples sector was the best performing sector. Banks also underperformed, worth noting. Let's take a look at treasuries, where we also saw a reaction to this ISM print. We saw uh, bond yields fall sharply across the board as investors took their money out of these risk assets and poured them in, poured it into safe haven assets. Uh, now we are seeing the U.S. 10-year trade around 1.66%, the 5-year around 1.5%, and the 2-year holding steady around 1.5%. 5, 5, but to yesterday, the clear message from markets, from investors, was a uh, risk-off uh, concerns on the back of this weak manufacturing print. Let's take a look at dollar crosses and what the reaction was in the FX markets. Uh, currently, the euro is trading a touch stronger versus the dollar. But yesterday, a very volatile day for the dollar index. It turned negative after surging to its highest level since May 2015 intraday. We also saw the yen catch quite a strong bid. Now the dollar are currently slightly. Slightly stronger versus the yen, but about around that 107.82 level. So quite a strong uh, appetite from investors for safe haven assets. Moving on, let's take a look at Asian markets overnight. Bear in mind that Chinese markets still closed for the uh, 70th anniversary of the People's Republic. Hang Seng has reopened, though, over in Hong Kong. That index is trading down about a third of a percent. Uh, more broadly, looking at Asia, we are seeing that negative sentiment from Wall Street filter through. So losses coming through from the be the Nifty Fifty. And over in Australia, that main index is down about 1.2%. Let's take a look at opening calls for Europe. We saw a massive shift lower for European Equities yesterday with the stock 600 ending more than 1% lower after a strong start early on. Now we're looking at more losses for the FTSE 100, the DAX, and the CAC. Over in Italy, though, we're looking at a bit of a rebound, uh, about 38 points higher. Overall, fairly muted moves, though, in terms of magnitude for European equities. Karen? Right, Juliana, let's get into the catalyst for some of the selling. U.S. manufacturing
1: activity fell to its lowest in more than a decade in September. The ISM index came in at 47.8 as worries mounted over the impact of a trade war with China. The reading below 50 also indicates the manufacturing sector contracted over the period. Greg Williamson, head of strategy of Pluribus Labs, joins us down the line from San Francisco. Greg, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for joining us. I want to just get into the moves that we saw yesterday. It sounds violent when we say that we wiped out all of the third quarter gains in one session, but it's hard to be too concerned about a one-odd percent drop in some of the major indices. But what do you make of how we've started the month of October Uber, that some experts are warning could be more volatile than what we've had in previous months?
3: It certainly could be more volatile than previous months. However, uh, we did see uh, a very weak uh, August and uh, a stronger September. So the start of October with a 1% move in the U.S. markets is not unprecedented by any means. Certainly it's better than October 19th of 1987. Uh, we normally see uh, a daily move in the U.S. markets, a plus or minus And since 2011, we've seen daily moves of about 0.31%. So yes, a 1% move does seem big, but it's our worst day in five weeks. Year-on-year basis, the U.S. markets just fell up 17%. And really, all we did was have a flat quarter as a result of the day's trading. Now, there were a number of things that influenced trading yesterday, not just the ISM results. We did have slow global growth. We had the unknown Uh, We have an unknown U.S. jobs number coming out this week on the back of a a, a very disappointing number last month. We did have a closure of the Asian markets, which limited liquidity in the marketplace today. We've had poor unicorn and IPO uh, pricing actions in the United States, poor technicals, poor behavioral statistics. We had a bad weekend of political activity with increased impeachment talks in the U.S. and the negative impact on Joe Biden's candidacy as a Democrat candidate. Uh, And, of course, we had the Hong Kong uh, conflict turning hot with uh, a protester being shot. All of these things are going to create uncertainty and increase the potential risk. However, that wall of worry exists, and markets tend to climb a wall of worry.
1: Typically, though, Greg, in recent uh, months and years, we've seen bad news actually cause a positive response on markets but what we saw yesterday bad news was in fact bad news particularly with the ism so why did the fed put fail because typically investors in recent years have been looking for that central bank action for them just to simply step in at some point which would show up the market
3: Well, I don't know that the Fed put has actually failed. After one day, the Fed isn't going to come into the market and say that uh, they're going to do anything necessary to support the market. I think Jerome Powell has already said that, and we have three Fed officials speaking at the end of this week on the day that the jobs number is announced. We also have a late October Fed meeting in addition to the December Fed meeting in which there could be further rate cuts announced. So the Fed has indicated that it is on a policy path of easing at this point rather than tightening, uh, although there is Some dissension among Fed members as to how much easing should occur and when. Um, So we don't, I can't say, and I don't think anyone could say that the the Fed has not uh, continued to support the markets through their Fed put as originally established by Alan Greenspan in the 2000s.
2: Greg, President Trump was very quick to respond yesterday on the back of this week's manufacturing print. He blamed the Fed and the strong dollar on the weakness. Uh, How much of this would you actually pin on the strong dollar versus the impact from the trade war?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that anyone can actually say a percentage of the market's response is due to a strong dollar. But yes, the dollar has been strong. And even though we point out that the dollar was volatile, uh, today or yesterday, I should say, with regard to or in comparison to other currencies, it is really at an all-time high. Uh, other currencies with lower interest rates are more attractive. Uh, a strong dollar will impact balance of trade to some extent and the the price uh, effectiveness of U.S. goods relative to other goods. Having said that, a strong dollar creates a country in which the The physical assets and the financial assets are highly desirable uh, because it is a stable currency and is a strong currency. So uh, even though it might impact consumption goods, it might also positively impact investment opportunities and capital raising capabilities. So the, the specific impact is unknown.
2: Within the the headline print, uh, we saw that export subindex plummet to 41. So that's around the 2009 crisis levels. I mean, given that exports is uh, one of the key weak points within this report, if we do see the Fed engage in more easing, how much can incremental rate cuts actually do in this environment?
3: I think that's a great question as well. And there are a number of economists who have suggested that incremental rate cuts cannot do much at this point in time. And certainly a negative rate policy, as we see in some U.S. Uh, economies, would, would not be beneficial for the U.S. economy. But please remember that the ISM, the manufacturing survey, is, a, is one part of the U.S. economy. We also have the consumer. And consumer, uh, The consumer activity, consumers' uh, incomes, and job availability is very, very strong and continues to strengthen. Even with last month's weak number, we still added 130,000 jobs. That particular print or number was out of line with other private industry surveys and even the Bureau of Labor Statistics household survey, which suggested that the jobs number should have been a plus 220,000, even plus 590,000. So I think this month is a very interesting number. You may see a very strong surprise to the upside uh, with regard to the U.S. jobs number, which would put us back on track for a consumer, U.S. consumer led uh, recovery. Yes, concern about manufacturing, but also acknowledging that that concern is driven in large part by global growth and by U.S. trade policy activity, which will be settled at some point. And the U.S. will continue with uh, perhaps it's slower than expected growth. Uh, certainly not the three to four percent that I think the president thought that he was going to get. But we're at the two percent level now. And uh, I don't think we're in any uh, there's any likelihood that we'll enter recession between now and, and certainly the election, if not uh, thereafter.
1: Greg, we're all on the edge of our seats now waiting for that to non-farm payrolls report on Friday. Thank you very much for setting the scene for us. Greg Williamson, head of strategy at Pluribus Labs. Students are gathering for a sit-in at the school of an 18-year-old protester shot by police in Hong Kong yesterday. The city's police commissioner has defended the officer and said he acted in self-defense. That says 96 people face rioting charges after China's National Day saw some of the worst violence in 17 weeks of anti-government demonstrations. Sherry is in Hong Kong with the latest. Sherry, we are watching those pictures live yesterday as you brought us coverage, the uh, fairly peaceful umbrella movement uh, moving through the central business district there in Hong Kong Island, uh, but then offset with slightly more uh, um, elevated uh, violence in the new territories with tear gas being fired early on. But the events now as they've transpired around this 18-year-old seem to potentially raise the risk that demonstrators will have a new cause to rally around.
4: That's right. I mean, that's uh, certainly the main headline driver in the aftermath of yesterday's uh, protest. Uh, certainly in uh, you know different level of aggression, I would say, uh, watching this uh, development for months now because uh, Hong Kong was marking China's National Day uh, yesterday. And uh, we are seeing some angry criticisms as well from some uh, Hong Kong public as well as protesters. In fact, as we speak in a CBD area of Hong Kong, we are seeing as some people gathered around calling for restructuring of police and really calling for different ways of policing this protest as well. That 18-year-old that you mentioned who was shot by police yesterday in hospital as we speak. Now, the Hong Kong government says as of this morning that he's in a stable condition, citing information given by the hospital authority of Hong Kong, while adding that the police officer in acted in self-defense and within the boundary of police guidelines. And police also, hours after the shooting incident, reacting in a video statement saying that uh, police officers' lives were under threat, once again defending this incident as well. Now, where we're getting conflicting reports at this point is whether where uh, the protester was shot with this live round police says it was near the shoulder area or in the shoulder area but the local media some in local media say that he was shot in the left side of his chest as well, and of course, some numerous videos going around online, uh, certainly depicting that intensity of the moment. But uh, details have not been confirmed in, in terms of the context of what exactly happened there. But as you pointed out, uh, certainly ge- uh, getting a different reaction uh, from many different uh, you know sectors and communities and uh, public and international community as well. We've got uh, Amnesty International for one reacting to this shooting incident uh, earlier today, saying that this is an alarming development in the Hong Kong police's response to protests and calling on the authorities of Hong Kong to launch a prompt and effective investigation into the sequence of events. And also, I think it's more importantly so that urging uh, Hong Kong authorities to urgently review uh, their approach in policing the protests here in Hong Kong. And then as of now, we've got, uh, you know, Hong Kong's hospital uh, authority saying that to more than 100, exactly 104 people were injured from yesterday's clashes as of this morning, guys. Thank you very much for bringing us the update, Sherry. Chris Hughes has joined us, Professor
1: of International Relations, London School of Economics. Uh, Chris, uh, you can see the pictures playing out live there during the coverage. The point is what happens next, because uh, Hong Kong authorities have tried to row back some of that tension by removing the extradition bill, yet there's been still a long list of demands, some of it around the investigation to the actions taken by the police force, uh, the influence of Beijing still in the territories. What do you make of uh, the way out of this mess that Hong Kong has found itself in?
5: Yeah, I mean, they have five demands, and the biggest one probably is universal suffrage and proper elections, Um, one person, one vote. Whether they will ever get that is a big issue, but I think now that the national day is out of the way, uh, there could be some more room for manoeuvre. It could go either way, of course, because Xi Jinping, and I think the real decisions are made in Beijing, obviously. So it, it could mean a, a harder approach, but I think there are indications actually of a more pragmatic approach. We, see, we saw last week a town hall meeting with the chief executive and local communities and an increase in government spending. Remember, the Hong Kong government has substantial reserves and it's beginning to spend those on things like housing and helping the poor. Now, that could just be window dressing, of course, but I think it also shows that in Beijing, they realise that They need to take a different approach to this. They need to do something new. So there's something changing in the centre of power in Beijing about the way they're going to handle this. So if we are optimistic and we try and see something good coming out of this, and it's very difficult at the moment given what happened yesterday, I think there is some movement and some positive signs there. Of course, there's an important political dimension to that because if they really want to start addressing underlying concerns of inequality in hong kong and lack of housing and so on that means more efficient governance and if you want more efficient governance you need political change and you need something like democracy so it could be a very interesting turning point it will all depend really on that balance of power in beijing i think between hardliners and people who are more pragmatic
2: now, many China experts have said in the past that the real pressure point for Beijing is going to come from the geopolitical side of things, not the economic side. And I, I ask in relation to the US-China trade war. So how do you think about what's going on in Hong Kong right now in relation and how it fits in terms of Beijing's negotiating strategy when it comes to the trade war?
5: Well, I mean, the US have linked it directly, uh, the Hong Kong issue with the trade war, and Donald Trump did that himself. And of course, there's also legislation going through Congress, which would punish officials both in China and Hong Kong if they are seen as doing anything bad to the demonstrators using violence and so on. So there is a direct linkage. Um, The Chinese see it as all caused by the CIA um, and sort of, you know, the infiltration by the US and and manipulation, which of course is absurd. Um, uh, But I think they're playing to a domestic audience in China on that, and of course, that also plays into Chinese nationalism. So you've got the trade war plus the Hong Kong issue And the Chinese media are linking these two to play to the nationalist audience. And we saw what that's like yesterday with those big military parades and how important that is.
1: It was quite stunning, wasn't it, to see the sophistication of those weapons, which tells you just how advanced the Chinese are in closing that gap with the Americans. But that show of might, I mean, how does it sort of come into the mix when effectively you can't use any of those own weapons against your people? It just simply would not be uh, digested well internationally. And you've got to say, even domestically, there might be Step back and be questioning if, if that sort of force was used on the territories in, uh, you know, in Hong Kong.
5: Well, of course, but I mean, one of the interesting things about China's defence spending is they spend more on domestic security than they do on the military, on the P- PLA, the army. So what we saw yesterday was obviously aimed. It was a message to the United States because if you look at the kind of missiles that they're on show, um, which were stealth
1: types of weapons, all
5: kinds of Mm. intercontinental but also anti ship missiles, you know, designed to take out a US carrier group. So they're thinking about Taiwan, the upcoming elections in January in Taiwan, all of those issues, which are quite separate from the domestic politics where they have a huge number of armed police and domestic security services, a lot of them have been demobilized from the PLA and transferred to domestic duties. So there's no shortage there of a kind of paramilitary police force for domestic security, whereas what we saw yesterday was clearly aimed at at a message to the United States.
1: Um, Chris thank you very much for joining us Uh, appreciate the coverage Chris Hughes with us professor of international relations London School of Economics with his perspective on uh, the Hong Kong developments yesterday. Coming up on the show my way or the highway quote uh, from Boris Johnson as he warns his final Brexit offer is the only proposal on the table if Brussels wants to avoid a no
2: deal details of his big reveal coming away next. Plus, we'll speak with Covestro CEO Marcus Stielmann as the chemicals maker faces concerns over a slowdown in the German economy. That's a first-on interview at 9.30 CET. And if you just can't get enough of
1: Squawkbox, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cmbc.com, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. Prime Minister Boris Johnson will unveil his, quote, final offer to the European Union today. In his keynote speech at the Conservative Party conference, Johnson will reveal details of his Brexit plan before submitting the proposals to Brussels. According to pre-released extracts, Johnson will describe his deal as a, quote, fair and reasonable compromise. He is also expected to rule out negotiating a delay if brussels does not engage with the offer adding the only way to move on is to come out of the eu on the 31st of october german chancellor angela merkel says she's hopeful the us and china will find a solution to the trade war she's added that the dispute is one of the factors adding to uncertainty in germany's economy as she also blamed the eu and britain for so far failing to reach an agreement over brexit We have no reason at all to sit haughty in any way because we have been negotiating for three years over Britain's orderly exit and this is causing us great uncertainty too. If I only think that this exit is meant to happen on 31st of October, and many business people still don't know today what their supply chain is going to look like in the future, then of course there is also a considerable potential for uncertainty, because Great Britain is not a small European country but a large global player.
2: Meanwhile, on the U.S.-EU front, uh, the EU's trade commissioner has told CNBC the U.S. could impose tariffs on European goods as soon as this month if it's granted permission to do so from the WTO. But Cecilia Malmstrom says the bloc would seek to retaliate almost immediately. Now, Willem is in Brussels and has been covering this story. Willem, did she sound optimistic that the two sides could reach a negotiated settlement and potentially avoid a tit-for-tat escalation here?
0: Juliana, she said she was optimistic. She sounded more realistic. She said she had the quote impression that the US would seek to impose these tariffs this month. uh, In response to this WTO ruling could be billions of dollars of European products that are targeted. And Cecilia Malmstrom really talked repeatedly about her desire to try and reach a negotiated settlement because of this parallel Boeing ruling we're expecting in a few months time. But of course, Few months quite a long time in the trump white house when it comes to these kinds of decision-making processes and so it could well be that the u.s tries to impose these tariffs then starts talking and then we see some kind of settlement because as far as she's concerned those tariffs look to be coming.
1: We hope that we do not have to, as you say, retaliate. We are still not given up the hope that we will engage with the U.S. to try to find a negotiated solution and freeze our our, uh, our, our punitive san- uh, sanctions on this because we think that this would be good for us and, and, and for the world. Uh, if we were to retaliate, as you know, we are preparing a list in close collaboration with, with the member states The EU always act in perfect accordance with WTO rules. So we will follow WTO rules. We will not go outside that.
0: So what does the EU do if you have this time lag between a ruling on Airbus that gives the US the power to impose tariffs and a ruling on Boeing that would then give the EU the power to retaliate? Well, she says that the EU wants to stick within WTO rules and always seeks to do so. So one alternative, if the EU wants a quicker response, she did acknowledge yesterday, was that they could look at some of the old WTO cases some rulings against the US that did in the past allow the EU to take measures measures they've not yet taken up. And those by holding them in their back pocket, essentially, they could move forward with those old judgments against the US to provide a much faster response. Now they did say, Cecilia Malmström and her team, that that would be a bit of a nuclear option, it would likely escalate tensions even higher. But that does remain, she said, an option on the table. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
1: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.